I feel like as we open this episode of, and chapter of Nehemiah that I should say, Welcome to the Dr. Phil Show, where family conflict is resolved each day. Because that's exactly where we are in Nehemiah chapter 5. In chapter 1, we see that Nehemiah faced a personal challenge. The scripture tells us that he wept, he was distraught, he wanted God to answer him immediately, and God did not. It took over four months of him weeping and praying and waiting and praying for him to hear from the Lord. And not only was he in a personal challenge because he was distraught, but he had a decision to make. Am I going to get involved in the lives of my brothers and sisters in Jerusalem? Those who are under oppression. Am I going to go step in and help them to rebuild not only their walls, because the walls were symbolic. Really, am I going to help them rebuild their lives? Am I going to find those that are still in bondage? Am I going to create a way to bring them back to the safety of God's city? In chapter 2, we saw Nehemiah not only faced a personal challenge, but he faced a political challenge. He had to go before the king, and he had to ask for favor. You know, one of the things that I see unique about this story with Nehemiah is that so many times we think, God, why do you have me here? Why am I in this situation? Why must I go through this? And the scripture teaches us that God knows the plans that he has for us. And if I am a submitted, surrendered child of God, I can live confidently in Matthew 6, that says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then these things are added. Nehemiah, I'm sure for most of his life, thought all my job is to do is to wake up, taste the wine, and hand it to the king. But Nehemiah was providentially positioned by the powerful Redeemer, God. He was positioned by him to be in the place that when the moment and the time came, that he would be able to stand in front of the king like no one else. So he had a political challenge. He not only had to be concerned, he not only had to be committed to get involved, but he had to go in front of the king and say, King, I need a minute. Now we've already talked about it, but you know this. If you make the king not happy, the king is well within his right and purview as the authority of the land to kill you. Go read the book of Esther. Remember we talked about reading Esther and understanding some of those things. Esther knew Even as queen, if she went to the king, that he could take her life. Well, that's where Nehemiah is. But his commitment to be surrendered and submitted to God, his commitment to be the one that God could use, superseded a personal challenge. It superseded a political challenge. But not only did he have personal and political, in chapter 3 it says he had an administrative challenge. He had all this rubble. In the way, and he had all those walls that were destroyed, and he had all of these people that were down and out, given up. And so, Nehemiah, after he got into the land, it says that he waited for three days. He took time to get his mind right, he took time to understand the situation, to assess what was going on. He walked around and said, I need to do this, and I need to do that, and we, this needs to be done, and here's the priority for it. Remember, he started at the sheep gate, and that was not a coincidence. That was simply to say, God, you're first. 
We're going to start at the place of sacrifice. We're going to start at the place of surrender. We're going to start at the place of worship. And we're going to build this city. Not on rock and roll. But on the rock that never rolls. The one that is consistent. The one who says, I am the same yesterday, today, and for as far out as you could even beyond what you could imagine in the future. We're going to build it on him. So he's got this personal challenge. He's got this political challenge. He's got this administrative challenge. And then he has a, an emotional challenge. Because now the workers are tired. They're fatigued. We're not having a big hoorah anymore. It's not like, woohoo, it's new, it's the beginning. We've got all this energy. Our hands don't have blisters, and I haven't mashed my finger with a rock and felt like I needed to say an ugly word yet, because it's, but now all that's over. And it's tedious. The muscles are sore. The psyche is worn out. The enemy's we saw last week, were surrounding them. And the people, rather than looking at the task, the great task for a great God is what we're going to see is how they described it. Rather than looking at the task, they're looking at the obstacles. And when you take your eyes off the prize and you put them on the things that are distractions, you begin to have less zeal, less fervor, less energy. And now they wanted to quit. And that's where Nehemiah is. He's like, we got to do this. No matter what we face, we've got to stay on. But you know what usually comes on the, on the heels of all of those other things? How many times have you been riding down the road in the car with kids or grandkids and somebody says, where do you want to eat? What's the number one answer? We'll play Family Feud. What's the number one answer? I don't know. McDonald's. My, in my car, it's always, I don't know. I don't care. I think you ought to name a restaurant that, by the way, because they would be like totally full all the time. All right, so somebody says, I don't care. What's the next thing? Because nobody cares. Somebody makes a suggestion, right? And then what does everybody else in the car say? Well, I don't want to eat there. So we had this enemy from the outside. Where are we going to eat? All of a sudden became an enemy on the inside because now we're not thinking about we're hungry and we're looking for a place to eat. We're thinking about now we can't get everybody on the same page and now we're arguing inside the car. So the enemy from the outside created a struggle on the inside. And that's where Nehemiah is, and that's why we're going to call it an episode of Dr. Phil. Because Nehemiah is now, and look in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against. Now when I say outcry, that doesn't mean a little bicker. That means 24-7 discord. A lack of unity. Would kind of be like the Acts chapter 6 episode where 
the Hellenistic Jews were going against the other Jews and they were saying that our widows are not being taken care of and if you don't get it fixed, we're going to leave the church. Kind of an episode. And so there's a great outcry against. Now that word comes up several times, but it's basically this, that we're crying out. And listen to me, Psalm 55, 12 through 14 says this, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from it. But it is from you. A man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. You see, if it comes from an enemy, yeah, they're an enemy, so what? But man, when it comes from you guys, now all of a sudden it's my friend, my companion, those people that I walked with. And that's why there's so many verses in Scripture that says, guard the unity. It's why it says, protect the unity. Bless when brothers and sisters walk together. I was reading this thing in research. And it said that when thoroughbred horses are attacked, they make a circle and they put their heads in the center and their hind legs to the outside so that when the enemy comes, they're kicking at the enemy. But donkeys, when they are threatened, guess where they, what they do? They put their hind legs in the middle and their heads on the outside. And so when they kick, guess who they kick? All the other donkeys. So I got to ask you this morning. Do we want to be thoroughbreds or donkeys? I want to be a thoroughbred. I want to be with you guys, that cord of three strands that's not easily broken. Walking side by side. And you know what? I know. I know that in this room there are people that said, I can't understand that. I don't get it. I've never walked side by side with anybody. And if I did, it was never a good experience. But I want to tell you that God is true and faithful and He is different. He will not leave you. And if we work, and I do mean work. I do mean struggle together. We can be a thoroughbred congregation. This community needs a thoroughbred. The children in this community need thoroughbreds. The senior adults in this community need thoroughbreds. Families need thoroughbreds. We need people that are going to circle around them and kick the enemy from the outside. Nehemiah, I believe, is going to teach us some truth. And from it, we can extrapolate some principles about how we can become thoroughbreds. There's some complaints that Nehemiah heard. The first one was, it was against. But then, look in verse 2, because when we read it here, it's about people who needed food. They raised an outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. These people were needing food. They were complaining, I'm hungry. 
But not only do we see them, if we keep reading, we'll see in verse 3 that it says, Others were saying we are mortgaging our, mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. This group is saying we're hungry and we don't know what to do. This group is saying, I have gone into debt and put everything I have at risk in order to get food. The next one in verse 4 says, Still others were saying we've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. They're saying due to this excessive taxation, we can't buy food. And then in verse 5, Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, And though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, here are people who have centuries of slavery in their past. Who now, by the goodness and the grace of God, have been set free. And have complained against those who enslaved them. And now in a moment when the country's down. They're doing to each other what they had just begged to God to get them out of. Man, these are the complaints that Nehemiah heard. We're hungry. We don't have any way to get it. We're hungry. We're in debt. We're hungry. It's excessive taxation. We're hungry because the loan sharks are killing us. Now there is a rabbit trail principle here. About finances. Don't be enslaved to debt. That's another study for another day. But write it off in the side and then say, hey God, speak to me about this thing. So Nehemiah has heard these complaints. So what was the plan that Nehemiah implemented? The first thing that he did, let's go to verse 6. Let's just look at verse 6 first. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. Now, y'all have to know, I I learned by pictures. I I think the, the really good word, if you're an educator, is tactile. I like to see something, touch something, hold it, look at it, and draw a mental picture in my mind of what it is. So when I heard that he was angry, I thought of Medea. You know when Medea gets mad, she says, I'm going to go get my gun. I think that's where he was. I think he was literally that angry. It wasn't just, oh, shoot, they shouldn't have done that. No, it's like I'm about to do something here. And he's angry. He's angry to the point that he's... You ever been so angry you got shaky and crying? You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if he was crying, but I think that's the idea behind it. So now let's go to verse 7. I pondered the accusations. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. 
Have you in anger or frustration? Cell phones are amazing. Smartphones are even more amazing. But they are very bad tool in the hands of an impulsive person. Because you see, an impulsive person, if they didn't have a smartphone in their hand, would have to wait till they got to their computer to type an email or a text and send it to somebody when they're angry. People who are impulsive can like reach in their back pocket, pull out their phone, and start typing, and you've hit sin before you really think about what you've done. Nehemiah pondered. D, you've done that, haven't you? I see you over there smiling, and Kim's nudging you. Or either Russell just turned around and says, hey, that's what he does. Oh, I am so guilty of it. Y'all got to know. Like, I have like 100 emails I've sent, and then right after it, I have one that says, oh, I'm sorry. But Nehemiah teaches me something here. Nehemiah shows me righteous anger in verse 6. doesn't say he was wrong for being angry. This is that kind of anger where Jesus cleared the temple kind of anger. Anger's not bad. Impulsive responses to anger can be bad. Nehemiah teaches us to ponder the accusations. Because once Nehemiah pondered those accusations, now he had a plan not to alienate everybody, but to, to, to form that circle of kicking to the outside to bring everybody together. And what's the first thing he did in verse 7? Let's just start back there. I told him, you're charging interest to your own people. So I called together a large group meeting to deal with them. He is appealing to their love of their countrymen, of their brothers and sisters, to the followers of God, Jehovah, Yahweh. He's saying, we're doing something to each other that probably we wouldn't do to an enemy. And he says, guys, we got to get that straight. So after he pondered, and after he appealed to their love, the scripture says that he called together a meeting of the people. And then what did he do? In verse 8. And said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews. Bought back. Do you know what that means? Redeemed. He, he reminds them of redemption. He reminds them of the purpose of God to redeem people. Ladies and gentlemen, we must never forget redemption. Because it is through redemption that we are restored to righteousness. It is through redemption that we are made joint heirs with Christ. It is through redemption, the blood that Jesus Christ, Christ shed on the cross at Calvary that we who are in Christ are new creatures and our old selves have passed away and behold all things are made new. He's reminding them. He's not only saying look these are your countrymen these are your people but I'm appealing to your love. I'm reminding them of redemption. And I got to go back. I think I need to go back to that appeal to love. These are your countrymen. These are your brothers. In an Old Testament setting Jewish people would have been segregated. They would have been set apart. They would have said, well, we're Jewish people and they're them. And we don't have to worry about them. But i got to tell you, in the New Testament, Jesus, who came to fulfill the law, said there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. In other words, he said everybody 
is everybody. And so we, as followers of God, heirs of Christ, we can no longer look and say, oh, my people, then that means this. No, we've got to look and say, our people are Jesus' people, and Jesus' people are everybody because he declared it, that he wants it brought to all the nations, all the education levels, all the socioeconomic levels, all and all and all, and every time you say a name, you need to say all. And Nehemiah is telling this. He's saying, look, we're appealing to this thing. We're working towards it. There are accusations. But I'm appealing to your love. I'm reminding you of redemption. I'm going to you in verse 9. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He's reminding them of the Word of God. He's going back to places in Scripture where he can say, Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. He's telling them they need to guard their witness. We've got to go back to verse 9 for that. Let's look at it. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And what he's saying there is, as children of God, as those who are under the banner of Yahweh, we need to guard our relationships with one another so those who are outside the family of God don't look in and say, why would I want that? Because they can't even get along. And I can go down to the local pub, the local sports bar, spend the whole evening and all I've got is friends. But if I go to church, all they do is bicker and not get along. He's appealing to the love. He's reminding them of redemption. He's going to them with God's word. And he's saying, guard your witness. Now he takes a shift. Because when we get to verse 10, I and my brothers... And my men are also lending the people money and grain. So now he's going autobiographical. He's saying, this is what you're doing. Excessive taxation. This is what you're doing. Loaning money at exorbitant prices. This is what you're doing. You are adding to the problem. He says, but look, follow me. Look at the example that I am setting. So in verse 10, he said, again, I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. He says, change your behavior. Do different. On Wednesday nights when we study the experiencing God, it goes something like this. God's always at work around us. 
God desires a relationship with us. He invites us to join Him. But when we get to that place of Him inviting us to join Him, now it creates a crisis of belief. Hey God, I want to be on your team, but do I really have to change my life? Because there's a crisis. Do I really believe God's Word is true? If I believe God's Word is true, then I've really got to follow it. And if I really have to follow it, the next principle is I must adjust my life. These people could agree all day long that what was happening was not good. That's their crisis of belief. But until they adjusted their life, it wasn't going to be better for their brothers and sisters. And he said, this is what we've done. What else did he implement? He invoked the judgment of God. Look at verse 12. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this may God shake out their house and possessions, anyone who does not keep his promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. What he just taught us was you don't make light promises to God. In other words, God, if these people are just only agreeing with this in word and not in deed, then God, would you pour your judgment out on them so that there would be consequence and penalty in their lives. The idea of shaking out the robe, there's nothing left. That's the plan. This is the word that God preserved. This is the word that God put to us. Then he says, don't make empty commitments to me. In your crisis of belief, adjust your life. But when you adjust your life, you better count the cost. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Nehemiah. Let's go on to verse 14. Remember, nope, not that one. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until this 32nd year, 12 years is how long he was the governor, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Nehemiah looked back and said, this is the way it's been. And I'm asking you to sacrifice. I'm asking you to join me. I'm asking you to change behavior. And in the past, this is what governors did. But in the present, this is who I am. So he examined history. In verse 17, it says that he lived humbly. I'll start reading in verse 16. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. Instead of what? Charging? Instead of being oppressive? Instead of doing all of these things? Instead of being about building my kingdom? 
He said, I was about building, I am about building this city, I'm about raising you up, I'm about restoring you to being the people of God. Instead of doing this, all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, not only that, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on the people. Nehemiah said, I'm not just asking you to act a certain way. I'm not just telling you what you ought to do. He said, I'm asking you to join me in a different mindset. I'm asking you to look and see, let's do this together. And Mount Zion, this community is begging for light. This nation is begging for light. This South Atlanta is begging for consistent people who will not just walk in and say, what's in it for me? But together, let's raise each other up. And the all the only type of raising up that will work is the foundation built on the blood of Jesus Christ. Because all the others are sham jewels. But Jesus is the diamond for the decades. He's the one that does not change. The city needs Christ. And Christ has appointed us to be his ambassadors. Will it take sacrifice? Yes. Will we have to work with one hand on a sword sometimes and one hand building the wall? Maybe so. Will there have to be something bigger than me to live for? Yes. We are building a kingdom perspective. We are building a community on the rock of Christ. And he says, if you'll do that, if you'll seek me first, then I will add all these things unto you. I'm going to venture to go as far and say this. That if we will put our priority on Christ, that the conditions that are causing people to rebel will improve. I believe that. And that's not prosperity theology. That's simple investment understanding so Nehemiah has listened to some complaints Nehemiah has implemented a plan Nehemiah has said follow me as I follow God Paul said that too in the New Testament by the way so now I want to talk about some principles that we can follow now what is a principle A principle is not necessarily a command out of Scripture, but a guide taken from Scripture that if we will apply it to our lives, then life will be honoring to God and better for us. So what is the first principle that I believe that we can draw out? We must be the church before we can build the church. We've got to learn how in here to embrace, to accept, to show hospitality. We've got to learn inside this family how to be this church. 
And once we get good at being in this church, then when we go out into the community, people will be drawn when we go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. Because they're going to see consistency. They're going to see truth. They're going to see Christ. What's another principle that we can draw out? We must learn to face conflicts. Relational problems are inevitable and we cannot ignore them. It's painful to stop strife. But it will only get more difficult the longer you wait. You got a hard job? Go ahead and confront it. Let's work on it. Let's do not allow Satan the joy of building a false wall between us. Let's knock down that wall and let's build a real wall out there between him and our community. Him and each other. We must learn to face the conflicts. Ignoring conflict does not kill the conflict. Ignoring the conflict actually makes it a bigger monster than it really is. Unity must be protected. Unity must be guarded, maybe another way to say it. If you have been offended, don't sit back and say, well, I'm just going to hold on this till they come to me. Because let me tell you, some folks may never come to you. And you may spend the entire rest of your life offended. And they're going on as happy as they can be. And you're the one staying up at night and have, eating Alka-Seltzer, Tums, or whatever you eat when you have those things. I'm telling you, I have watched people's lives I have watched pastors' ministries be destroyed because they wouldn't let it go until the other person came. Matthew 18 says that when you're offended, go. That doesn't mean you go with both fists ready and slinging punches, but you go in humility and you say, look, We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we've got a conflict. And the scripture, as I understand it, says that we don't war against flesh and blood. That means it's really not against us. However Satan may have tricked or deceived us or made it look, it's really not against us. It's him against us, and we're the body of Christ. And now we've got to work on this thing. Help me. Unity, protected. And you know... Pride will cause us, if we're the offender, not the offended, I'm not going to them. I'm going to hold on to this thing because it's mine and I like it and it makes me feel good. That's a lie from the devil. Matthew 15 would say, if you have it, go to them. And say on this day and this time, I was rude. I was offensive. I was wrong. I'm sorry. 
Because unity doesn't just happen. It's not a byproduct of walking through the door. Unity is hard work. It's an effort that has to be exerted. Choose the right battles. Have you ever won the battle and lost the war? Probably every parent in here could speak of a time that they fought the wrong battle with their kid. In the church, in the community, in politics, we choose the right battles. I had a conversation with someone recently about a church that's not in this community. They said, you know, we've been inviting old so-and-so to come to church for probably 10 years. And he came to church last week. And I was about ready to jump up and down. I'm like, 10 years and he came to church? And then there was a comma, but he came in shorts. What the heck? I don't care if he comes in shorts, long pants, a sweater, a tie. For 10 years, you've been trying to get the brother to come to church, and he finally does, and now you're going to complain because he had on shorts? That's a wrong battle. Just a wrong battle. And I think the church is made too many things the wrong battle. And have you ever noticed there are always sins that we don't commit? You understand what I'm talking about? Let's get honest for just a minute. I am most offended by the things that I really don't do. I usually have mercy on the things that I'm guilty of. Choose the right battles. Guard unity. Look for the real thing and identify the real enemy. Think before speaking. Nehemiah taught us that. I pondered. Think before speaking. I pondered. If you have... ADHD, that's not always a thing because it could also be called an impulsivity disorder. But the scripture says no matter who you are, let the mind of Christ dwell in you. Deal with conflict face to face. This used to not be such a big deal. Or as big a deal. It's always been a big deal, but it's, it's taken on a new face now with the advent of social media. Cheap jabs, long arguments, 
off of Facebook or Twitter or where, whatever people use, that is so pointless. Does so much damage to the kingdom of God. People outside the church are looking and going, look at those Christians. But also part of dealing with conflict face to face is you actually go to the person and not the person's friends or your friend and say, let me tell you about old Tanya. Yesterday was National Hot Dog Day, and yesterday was National Donut Day, and she chose donuts over hot dogs, and I am so irritated with her. I could just go to her and say, make two of them, hot dog and donut. And we cause so much destruction in the body. Nehemiah said, guys, we have got such a greater task. Conflict, face-to-face, not in a Facebook post, not in gossip, not in talking to the neighbor. And pursue resolution. Work at it. Woodrow Wilson said, if you come at me with your fists doubled, I think I can promise you that mine will be double as fast as yours. But if you come to me and say, let us sit down and take counsel together, and if we differ from one another, we will find that we are not so far apart after all, that the points on which we differ are few and the points on which we agree are many, and that only, and that if we only have the patience and the candor and the desire to get together, we will. I have on my phone a picture of three deer lying dead in a creek. They're all male. They're all bucks. They have racks, antlers, whatever you want to call it. And they're all three dead laying in a creek because they locked horns and nobody would let go. So whether they drowned or whether they starved, they're the same. They're dead. You want to kill unity? You want to kill fellowship? You want to kill progress? You want to bring things into your life that are just detrimental? Lock horns and never let go. Seek resolution. Pursue it. Sometimes we agree to disagree and, hey, you know what? That is A-OK. It really is okay. To agree to disagree. It really is okay to have conflict. Conflict is not the death of us. The lack of resolution to conflict is the death of us. Man, Nehemiah. I don't know that I started to study with him being one of my heroes. I knew him and I was familiar with him. And I was like, would high five him if he walked down the aisle? But man, he is teaching the stuff. That we as a church, that we as families, that we as a city, that we as a nation need to hear right now. Because I would venture to say next Sunday morning when we come to church, that half of us are going to have the president that we voted for. The other half of us are not going to have the president that we voted for. And the good thing is, God's still over them. And you got to hear me. We can let it be a divider or we can let it be a uniter because 
the scripture teaches that we're not citizens of this world. We're subject to the system of this world now, and God gives us direction on how to be that. But he says, ultimately, we're here. And every time that Satan can put a flash over here or a flash over there and can cause me to take my eyes off of him and his purpose, he has won a battle. Nehemiah was telling the people of Jerusalem. The enemy on the outside is not our problem. The enemy on the inside is not our problem. We've got to be united for the purpose. For us, that is to make, mark, and mature disciples. And we've got to be committed to the one that does it. And that's Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy of the worship. He's the one we pursue. So this morning, let us together as Team Mount Zion commit ourselves to not taking our hands away from the wall. Let's continue to build the wall. Let's continue to find the people. Let's continue to grow. Let's follow through with our commitments. If we made a commitment to follow Him as Savior, let's follow through in baptism. If we follow through in baptism, let's continue the commitment to being mature disciples. Once we become mature disciples, let's continue our commitment to the Great Commission, and that is to reach more people for the cause of Christ. And once we reach people for the cause of Christ, let's implement the Great Commandment, which says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what it looks like when you love your neighbor? It means you're willing to sacrifice. It means you're willing to serve. It means you're willing to surrender. It means that you're willing to be in the uncomfortable position so that someone else might be comfortable so that they too can know what you know about Jesus Christ. Nehemiah had a wall. We've got a community. They need us because We have Jesus. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more or to contribute to online giving, please visit www.mzbc.org. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear more, simply click on the Sermons tab or subscribe to the Simple Truth Podcast through iTunes. Thank you for supporting Mount Zion, where you are welcome, wanted, and needed. 